Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, Rosemary. <laughs> Good to see y'all here today. And uh, before I begin, you may have noticed that Father Bill was wonderfully illuminated by the sun. And if your seat is uh, similarly illuminated, feel free to shift or move about. Um, I would say you'll want to shift to your right, because if you shift to your left and you're right here, the sun will follow you uh, during the whole sermon. So you don't want that to happen. Uh, so feel free to, to move now. But um, I'm excited to look at Mark 7 uh, with you today. Um, ironically, uh, we've been in, in a pretty controversial, contentious season, right? 18 months worth at least. And I would say the only thing that hasn't been a point of controversy is what they're fighting about here in Mark 7. It's kind of ironic. I mean, think about it. The only thing I think everyone's agreed on is we should wash our hands. <laughs> I mean, vaccines have proven, uh, unfortunately, surprisingly controversial. Masks, endlessly debated, social distancing, well, may as well uh, go through it, but washing our hands, okay. We knew how to do that beforehand. We knew it was a good idea. Lord willing, in the future, we'll just keep washing our hands, right? It's the only thing that we've been able to agree on, and it makes sense. We've all known from an early age, we need to wash our hands all the time. Go to the restroom, wash your hands. You're going to prepare food. Wash your hands, touch something dirty, wash your hands. Did you know I've even learned more effective, efficient ways to wash my hands in the last 18 months? I've learned how it's important to lather and scrub and get between all the parts of your hands. Someone told me you should sing the happy birthday song in your head to make sure you wash your hands long enough. Um, that's okay. In church, we actually recommend the Lord's Prayer instead. Um, that works really well when you're washing your hands. Uh, but it's interesting. Like I said, it's, it's the only thing that everyone's been pretty okay with. Washing your hands, that's a good thing. And then we come here to Mark chapter 7, and that's what they're fighting over. There's a controversy over washing of hands. That's what I want to dig into today. Um, we have kind of two main sections, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, about matters of the heart. And then kind of getting a little more specific, Jesus then will drill down to the heart of the matter in verses 14 through 23. So what's happening? Well, we begin with some of Jesus' disciples being caught dirty-handed. Look what Mark says. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and at this point, warning bells should go off in your, in your head because these have already been established as those who are not seeing God's work through Christ, and are actually opposing his work. So what's going to happen? Well, they saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. And they went to tattle to Jesus. Mark explains that there were proper ways to wash your hands in that time. There's kind of two sentences just for those readers without a Jewish background to say at that moment they would follow the tradition of the elders. Mark hits that a few times. That'll come up importantly whether they would wash their hands and they would wash their pots and even their, their dining couches. Um, I don't know. That seems like a good thing. Am I wrong? 
I mean, if you invited me over for dinner, I would hope that you're going to wash your hands and we'll use like clean plates and silverware and hopefully like the chairs and things are fairly clean as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, think about the reverse. If you went to someone's home and you looked over and there was grime under their nails and man, there's stuff stuck all over the backsplash and there's cooking and oh, hey, just move that aside and sit there. Don't worry about it. Well, how would you feel? I mean, it's kind of odd. Like, what's going on here? There's a big cultural gap, I think, from where we are to actually understanding what they are arguing about. Because washing your hands seems good. Hygiene, cleanliness, sanitation, those are good. Um, so the Pharisees, they go talk to Jesus, and they're like, hey, your disciples aren't doing some things that we would think of as good, but there's a whole different layer in the first century to the specificity of the hand-washing and the ritual process they're wanting his disciples to follow. Um, they're not attending to some of the basic cultural expectations and customs and habits. Um, and so what does Jesus say? Well, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He is sharp. He's fairly direct. Um, and, and it's probably worth pointing out that he quotes the prophet Isaiah correctly in context, unlike others who have quoted the prophet Isaiah recently, let the reader understand, um, but we don't have time for that today. <laughs> Look at what Jesus says. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites for hand washing? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Their heart is far from me. Like I said, this is about matters of the heart. That's what's going on here, not simply cleanliness. And Jesus says, you have left the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then in verses 10 through 12, he gives a specific example um, of a practice, we don't need to go into it very much, but suffice it to say that they were teaching people uh, how to find a spiritual loophole um, that actually would honor the letter of the law in honoring their parents, but in a way that evaded and avoided the actual spirit of the law. And that'll come up again and again. Are we scrupulously concerned about the letter of the law or do we discern and understand the spirit of the law and how that should guide and lead us? So um, let's talk a little bit more, because again, I don't think this is just about like clean cuticles and sparkling palms. There's more significance to this hand-washing idea. So let's, let's talk about that. Um, Timothy Gombus, who's a New Testament scholar, points out that modern Christians, you and me, may be tempted to regard the instructions in Scripture about clean and unclean as a primitive or legalistic set of rituals. But what was going on in the Old Testament, uh, the idea behind these instructions were to teach the people about the holiness of God. We'll get into that in a little bit more later. Uh, but that, the central purpose that fueled these debates, and there were fierce debates in the first century, among the Jewish leaders about how to do this correctly. What was clean? What was unclean? Um, I get that they may seem a little archaic, a little distant 
to our day, but what, what are they actually talking about? Well, first, um, Jesus' disciples are not ignoring commands from the scriptures. They're not being disobedient to a specific command that we find in the Bible. Um, instead, what's happened at the time is you had here the commands of the scriptures, and these leaders have built other things all over that. Uh, barnacles, accretions, such that it's almost unrecognizable from the original intent. And it's those cultural things that they're not following. Um, they're not being accused here of disobeying the scriptures, but of disobeying the traditions of men, uh, of the elders. Um, and what's interesting, if you go back and read some of these passages about the washing of hands and the proper uh, cleansing of bowls and things like this, what's, what's happening um, well, in the Old Testament, that was for a specific group of people in a specific context. And it was mainly a call for the priest uh, to cleanse their hands before they went and served in the temple. So before you're in the presence of a holy and almighty God, here's a reminder that we need to be cleansed. Um, and what the Pharisees had done is they had taken that idea that we remind ourselves of our need to be cleansed when we come into worship. And they said, we need to do this at all moments of every day. And rather than just washing their hands of dirt, there's actually a little more sinister thing going on here. Um, what's happened is that Jesus's disciples um, have been with people. And these leaders viewed those people as unclean and unholy. And so it's not that you could look at their hands and their hands look dirty. It's that they've been with the wrong kind of people. That's what they're accusing the disciples of. That's why they're asking Jesus, why do your followers hang out with the wrong kind of people? Um, and don't they realize that the wrong kind of people will defile and contaminate those of us who are good, righteous followers of God? That, that's what's happening here. Um, and I think that's good to see because some people will set this thing up in their head where somehow Jesus is uh, against the Old Testament. Or, or they'll play like good cop, bad cop, like Jesus is the good cop of the New Testament. God, we see, is a bad cop in the Old Testament. Have you, have you ever been around folks doing this? And I just think it's clear to say um, Jesus um, is in perfect alignment and fulfillment with the Old Testament. Uh, especially the spirit of the law. There's no conflict there. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to perfectly fulfill the spirit of the law. And so that's, I think, the crux of the issue. Because Jesus' opponents have taken the law, and it's a starting point for them. And from that, they built all this cultural junk that they're expecting everyone to follow. Jesus, on the other hand, looks at the intent of the law. He says, this is an arrow pointing to me. And then he fulfills it perfectly. And anything that, that we don't carry forward, well, it's because it's, it no longer serves that same purpose. It's been fulfilled in the gospel. It's been fulfilled um, in Jesus. I just think that's clear to say, this is not against the Old Testament in any way. He's against tradition. So let's talk about that for a moment. Um, because many of us, if you read this passage and you're like me, 
Um, you have a different argument that's more from our world playing in the back of your head. They were arguing this kind of specific hand-washing thing. That's in their world. What we might hear are dialogues between Roman Catholics and Protestants. What's the role of tradition? What's the role of the scriptures? Um, and I want to dig into that a little bit because we're an Anglican church. Um, we actually love tradition. <laughs> we value it. We think it's helpful. Uh, we think it's good. We don't think it's ultimate. And so Jesus has a lot to say uh, to us in this passage, especially as a church um, who values tradition, uh, but wants to do it in a biblical manner. Um, again, clearly Jesus is against any human tradition that is not properly rooted in the scriptures and the gospel. That, that's a clear takeaway uh, from this passage. Um, but I will say the best way to understand it is not to discount tradition in and of itself. It's not saying that we always have to reinvent the wheel and make it up new in every generation. That's actually the route to foolishness. <laughs> um, what Jesus is against and what we should be against is what might better be called traditionalism. Um, I actually think that the best definition or distinction I've heard of this, I was a church historian, my last name is Pelican. He says, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. See the distinction? Tradition, the good Christ-honoring, gospel-consistent, living faith of the dead versus this dry, empty, dead faith of the living. G.K. Chesterton, famous Catholic author, in his book, Orthodoxy, here's his definition of tradition. It's good as well. Tradition is the democracy of the dead um, that we actually receive, and we're part of a long line and a great tradition, but it doesn't mean that that's always perfect or infallible, right? It's very different from what Jesus is critiquing. Um, and uh, I want to actually introduce you, some of you actually know this author, Thomas McKenzie. Who knows Thomas McKenzie? Um, wrote a book called The Anglican Way, and we often recommend it. We've taught from it. Um, at the last church I was at, we actually had Thomas come in and do seminars um, on his book, The Anglican Way. He's a priest at Church of the Redeemer in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and he actually died this week. Um, Shockingly, tragically, um, on Monday, he was driving with his daughter. Um, they were going back to college. Uh, he has two kids. This is one of his two kids. Um, and on the highway, they were killed in an auto accident. Um, it, it's been interesting to watch the tributes pour in, um, kind of the who's who of, of Nashville, uh, folks from lots of different traditions, um, artists, musicians, uh, Andrew Peterson, if you know that name, was one of his best friends, wrote a sonnet for Thomas as kind of the um, ideal parish priest, this man of the gospel and of the sacrament. Um, but it was interesting. I, I watched his uh, funeral yesterday, um, and, and it, it made me go back and just go, hey, I'm going to talk about tradition. Uh, my friend Thomas wrote this book, The Anglican Way. Um, what's he say about tradition in there? Like if he was preaching today, um, and he's not, he's worshiping today. <laughs> but if he was preaching, how would he approach this? Um, what would he say and what has he said about tradition? And if you'll indulge me, I thought that would be a good way to honor my friend as well, to see 
what he said and what that would say to us now. Um, so he, he talks a lot about the Anglican church, the Anglican way, as a middle way. Um, that's one of his central ideas. And he says that the Anglican way lives at the center rather than the extremes. That's why we feel kind of uneasy in a really polarized environment. So we have learned that it's impossible to be radical about more than one thing. And so in the Anglican church, we don't desire to be radical about politics or traditions or ideas or even religion. This struck me. He said, we just want to be radical about the only thing worth being radical about, the amazing love of God in Christ. Um, good reminder. And his church, Church of the Redeemer, is this incredible parish in Nashville. It's kind of what we would love to grow up and be in many ways here at St. Thomas. Um, and one of the unique things about his church is they've had all these folks from different Christian backgrounds uh, come in and find a home there. Uh, and for many of them, finding the, the Anglican way has been uh, a lifeline for them. And they've grown in their faith. Or maybe it's been the one thing that's kept them from losing faith entirely. And it's inspiring to read about his ministry and his care. Here's what he said about folks being drawn into uh, churches like this, Anglican churches. He says, I know that God is bringing people to himself uh, by his Holy Spirit through the gospel in the context of the Anglican way. Note the emphasis there, being brought to, the, to God. Thomas says, I have found the grace of God present to me in Anglican prayer, worship, and action, but I also know Anglicans who are overly invested uh, in our tradition, who have even turned it into an idol. He says, knowing Anglican stuff and doing Anglican stuff is not the point. Everything is a way to know the deep love God has for you in Jesus Christ. For me, that was a great way to sum up what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, especially kind of where it hits us as a church who values and loves tradition. It's a good challenge. Um, Thomas writes, the church must never violate Christ the gospel, or the Bible. That's clear. Those are non-negotiables. He says some traditions are based entirely on the Bible, like we would say the creeds. Those are faithful, God-honoring tradition and should never be changed. He writes other traditions are helpful, but non-essential. And from time to time, these may need to be reformed, changed. And he writes that Anglicans believe this sort of reformation should always be done with the utmost care. That tradition is in need of being reconsidered when it no longer serves the gospel and that praying and reasoning together over time can help us discern if and when tradition should be changed. The guy I like to read a lot, Bishop N.T. Wright, um, and by the way, there's videos where N.T. Wright was at Thomas's church singing Bob Dylan songs. Look it up on the internet. It's awesome. It says, part of being a Christian is to learn the art of spiritual discernment. And part of that is learning to understand the scripture and to test human traditions against it. Uh, we want to take a middle way, a wise way when it comes to tradition and what role it plays in the church. So this next section uh, verses 14 through 23, in some ways, Jesus broadens the conversation, but he also really hones in, uh, specifically getting to the heart of the matter. 
Um, because in verses 14 through 23, you see it's all about being clean or unclean, more broadly. Not just are you washing your hands or not. Um, he gives a parable about when you eat food, um, it doesn't lodge in your heart, but it goes through you. <laughs> um, and yes, that's as maybe funny as you might think it would be. If you have a, you know, a child with you, they're going to find that to be humorous. Um, my footnote in the English Standard Version says uh, it goes out into the latrine. Um, I have another clergy friend. He just moved to Australia to minister. Um, and if you know, Australia is on like total lockdown. Like all their churches are virtual right now. So just moved from D.C. to Australia. He's a new minister and he's trying to lead their online services. And so he's reading through this passage about how food comes in and what makes us clean and unclean. And he says, and then it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And his five-year-old just yells, poop, <laughs> on the online video. Like, Jesus is not afraid to use a little humor. He's pointing to past the point of absurdity to make his point. Like, they're worried about these external things. He's like, that, that doesn't even lodge in you. It goes right through. Like, I mean, yeah, it's kind of gross. It's unclean. But more importantly, let's look at what comes out of the heart. And he has this gnarly list, verses 21 and 22. It's like, that's what we need to be worried about, is these things that come out of us, not the things that go into us and uh, go through us. That's what's happening here. Um, in many ways, the, the purity laws they even had about hand washing and that kind of thing, um, I really think they were there as a learning aid for God's people. They were there to teach us. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright again says the purity laws, he's suggesting, point to the real need of humans for a deeper purity, a purity of motive. And by focusing on the outward purity, these leaders are avoiding the deeper challenge of the gospel and the challenge to the human heart. They're worried about if their hands are dirty. And Jesus goes, your hearts are greedy and filthy and hypocritical. They had things completely backwards. Those laws in the Old Testament, many of which seem weird to us, um, you know, forbidding like bacon and shrimp and like really good food. Um, they're not there to show us how we can self-construct our own piety or holiness. They're there to point us to an awareness of God, an awareness of his holiness. Um, the priests, again, they would do these rituals not because their hands were overly dirty, and so the, the folks would go, oh, we're doing something serious here. We're coming before a holy and almighty God, and we need to be washed and cleansed to be in his presence. I, I've thought about it this way. I'm, let me try this on with you. See what you think. It's always a little, little tricky. I actually think a lot of these instructions in the Old Testament could almost be thought of as reverse sacraments. Let me tell you what I mean. So, the gospel sacraments, baptism, Holy Communion. Um, if you've ever been to a confirmation class or been raised in the Anglican Church, you would know that a sacrament is an outward, visible sign of an inward spiritual grace. So here's what a reverse sacrament would be, in my view. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual need for grace. That's what those commandments were. That's what they did. There were these outward visible reminders that we need 
the Lord, that we need his grace. Um, actually, that's why now that we have the gospel sacraments, baptism, communion, like we, we don't go back and do those again because the grace has come. And we can lean into that, but not because that was wrong, but because it was fulfilled. And it was fulfilled in and through uh, the Lord Jesus. Again, the issue with the disciples was not that they had dirty hands. Um, this is not like, I'm sure you've been in a public restroom and a three-year-old comes in, maybe because their parent was outside, and they come in and they use the restroom and they leave. And you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and then you see them at the buffet. No, you Just, okay. That's not what's happening here. It's not that their hands were dirty. It's that they were said that they were spending time with the wrong kind of people. And what that does that's really not helpful for the church is it would say that there are good people and bad people, those who are naturally clean and naturally unclean, where what Jesus is trying to tell them is, hey, we're all in this state of, of need. Um, we all need the Lord. Um, and it would almost be too easy to look at this and say, oh, good, we should be like the disciples and go after people who are far from God. And that's a right point to get to eventually. But the first would be to go, oh, I'm in need of the Lord. Like we would each be one of those unclean people that the disciples had defiled themselves by being with. And that's not to put ourselves down or anything. That's just to recognize our spiritual state and our need for the Lord. And it's, it's not really cruel to have that kind of prescription when there's a solution available. That we have the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus available to us. Uh, the love of God that we see um, in Christ. Um, and I will say Mark, uh, and we're, we're about done, but Mark leaves this um, as kind of a problem to be solved, right? It's just this spat, this controversy. Uh, but we know where this story is going. The gospel of Mark will take us to the cross uh, where we who are not properly washed or cleansed or maybe we're trying to wash or cleanse ourselves, clean up ourselves before coming to the Lord, but we're washed in the blood of the cross. Those of us who in need, are in need, we come there and we receive all that we need. Grace and mercy, holiness, righteousness. They're a gift. Not that we make, but that we receive from the Lord. Um, and there are actually some beautiful hints here of just kind of how Mark 7 falls. That's what I want to talk about as we finish. Um, it's an interesting principle we see. First of all, Mark 6, the, the last few verses of Mark 6, and Mark 6 is a long chapter, but it ends with a series of healings. And, and after this, Mark 7 is going to pick up again with some healings. Uh, there's a woman from Syrophoenicia whose daughter has an unclean spirit, and there's a man who is deaf. Here's what's happening this section on what makes someone clean or unclean is situated sandwiched between these amazing miracles where Jesus is interacting with and reaching out and healing the exact people these Pharisees were worried about. I think that's intentional. And why were they worried about them? Well, they thought if those, if those bad kind of people touched you, that you would be contaminated. Um, again, we've kind of had a sense of this over the last 18 months. Folks are worried. Here's, here's your germs. I'm going to get contaminated. But when folks touched the Lord Jesus and they were unclean or they were unwell, it didn't make Jesus unwell. He made them clean and whole. 
and healed them. That's the direction of the gospel. That's the posture of the kingdom of God, is that when those who are in need and are unclean and unwell come to Jesus, he heals them. We see goodness and wholeness and peace over and over again. In Mark 7, this woman comes with her daughter. Jesus heals them. Didn't make him unclean. It made them well. There's this interesting quote I came across from Tim Gombas. He says, all of this reminds us that rather than impurity spreading through touch, Jesus spread purity and healing and goodness. And that God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, explodes with life-giving restorative power, which is why Jesus encounters people fearlessly. And yes, he calls us to encounter people fearlessly as well, but more so he invites us to encounter him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.